Welcome to the Exam Study Expert Podcast, helping you ace your exams at school and university through the psychology of high performance and the science of studying smarter, not harder. It's my pleasure to introduce your host, the Cambridge-trained memory psychologist and exam success coach, William Wadsworth. The path to productivity runs right through calm. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome back uh, productivity guru, Chris Bailey. Chris was on the show way back in October 2020 on episode 29, Focus and Get Things Done with Chris Bailey. Uh, He's been dubbed by Ted as the most productive man you could hope to meet. His journey as a productivity expert has in recent years led him to dive deeply into the world of being a little calmer. And as he puts it, uh, the pursuit of calm ultimately leads us to become more engaged, focused and deliberate, whilst making us more productive and satisfied with our lives. In an anxious world, investing in calm is the best productivity strategy around. So says his new book, How to Calm Your Mind, Finding Peace and Productivity in Anxious Times. Uh, And when I read that, I knew I had to have him back on the show to find out more. So I was thrilled that he agreed to come back and share a little more of his perspective on the relationship between calm and productivity. I think you really enjoy our conversation today. We touch on all kinds of things from dealing with anxiety and burnout uh, through to managing your relationship with distractions and overstimulation uh, and how you might reset it and find not just calm, for the sake of better mental health and and satisfaction, but also because it makes you more productive and allows you to get more done. I started our conversation by asking Chris to read a short extract from the the start of his new book. Uh, So we'll hear that from Chris now and then get right into the conversation. So without further ado, here's Chris reading from How to Calm Your Mind. During this journey to calm, my productivity levels rose dramatically as I became less anxious and burnt out. With a clear, calm mind, I could write and connect ideas with relative ease. When I would typically have written several hundred words, I found myself penning a couple thousand. With less anxiety, I became more patient. I listened more deeply and became far more engaged with whomever I was with and in whatever I was doing. My thoughts were crisp, my ideas sharp, my actions more deliberate. I became more intentional and less reactive, my mind no longer frazzled by outside events. And I connected with the purpose behind my actions, which made my days feel more meaningful. Well, look, Chris, thank you so much for sharing that little extract. And welcome back to the Exam Study Expert podcast. It is nice to chat with you again. How have you been? Really good. Thanks, Chris. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, thank you for, for sharing that little extract. I mean, that just... That just spoke to me so deeply, and I think would speak to a lot of our listeners as well, just because something I've long preached on the podcast is the goal of studying smarter, not harder. I think yeah. it's in the strap line of the podcast itself. And yeah. it's really interesting. When, when most people hear that, they hear that direction of causality. So they hear, okay, I'm going to learn how to study smarter, be more effective, and therefore I don't need to study as hard. I don't need to put in as many hours. But mm-hmm. actually, I've always said that the direction of causality goes the other way as well. So by not studying quite so hard, 
you give yourself the energy and intensity that you need in order to use the most effective study strategies. Yeah. Or to kind of give the counterexample, like if you study too hard, if you overstudy and exhaust yourself and burn out effectively, yeah. then you run out of the energy and the concentration you need in order to use the most effective study strategies. And so you don't study as smart. Mm-hmm. And, and I, th- I feel like we're, we're probably on a fairly similar page in that respect, in terms of your, you know, your thoughts about the interplay between, between calm and productivity. Yeah, that is such a good parallel with where I was heading with this book. It's kind of like when, uh, when an actor aces an audition, because they don't care about acing it. <laughs> it's, it's kind of a similar yeah. effect, uh, where, you know, the, we, we tend to sometimes focus on the wrong things when it comes to productivity. And, you know, there's a lot of good productivity advice out there. I've, I've spent the better part of the last decade trying to filter out the stuff that works from the stuff that doesn't in my previous work. And I actually think we need the traditional productivity advice more than ever, uh, especially given all that has changed in the last two or three years since we've chatted last. But uh, it's so critical at the same time that we develop our capacity for productivity in the first place. And that's where calm comes in. And it it seems like such an odd thing to focus on as it relates to personal uh, achievement. But I think it's more critical than ever, uh, especially when we live in such an anxious time in such an anxious world. You know, I, I noticed the effects of this myself going through a period of anxiety and burnout in my own life and realizing just how devastating the effects of that were, not only for my mental health, but also for my work. I I wasn't able to accomplish nearly as much as I was before, of course, in that burnt out and anxious state. I, I think we all have a lot of examples from our own experiences for just how much anxiety can hamper our productivity. Uh, you know, if if you're about to give a speech in front of a thousand people and you have to go on stage in 15 minutes, and I asked you to, you know, I don't know, read a book or read a research paper or write something, you probably wouldn't be able to direct a lot of attention towards that task. Yeah. And that's the effect of anxiety. Anxiety shrinks our cognitive capacity and our ability to get work done. It shrinks our attentional space, an idea we I think we chatted about last time, our mm-hmm. working memory capacity, by about 20%. It makes us more distractible. It leads to more negative self-talk. It leads us to be less engaged and less present in what we're doing. And, and it seems to limit our cognitive performance in general. And so we're we're not always in a state where we're about to go on stage in 15 minutes for a thousand people, but anxiety is that same effect, only smaller, but all day long, where we don't realize that our capacity for getting things done has been diminished, and not to mention our capacity for enjoying ourselves and appreciating what we're doing and connecting with what we're doing, which also uh, is motivating in and of itself, uh, as you're saying in, in, in the example that you're giving. And so it's this fascinating idea where sometimes, it, you know, when we care about productivity too much, we can sometimes work too hard, which has mm. a negative effect on our productivity. And ironically, very ironically, by stepping back and investing in strategies like that intentionality, like that thoughtfulness, and and like building a capacity for calm and presence, uh, we can get that much further over the longer arc of time. 
absolutely. And this is a conversation I, I often find myself having in in some form with uh, either coaching clients or with with podcast listeners or you know students that come to our workshops or, or whatever. You know, they they're in a state where you know they're incredibly ambitious, and maybe we'll touch on ambition in a little bit. But you know, they're incredibly ambitious, yeah. so they 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 think they need to work very very hard. Um, you know, burn the midnight oil. Um, you know, these these kind of crazy schedules i've seen sometimes where you yeah. know you might be leaving yourself five hours you know I, I literally saw one schedule um and this was a high school kid so he was you know 17 18 and he'd got his google calendar scheduled out um with activities planned you, you know up until midnight each night right. and then from 5 a.m in the morning you know he said he had problems focusing and concentrating on his work yeah. and uh, you know yeah. i mean t- to you that probably sounds obvious well of course you're having problems concentrating on your work if you're you know sleeping 5 hours a night yeah it's it's a really tough situation to be in i guess i guess my question mm-hmm. would be like if you're in that kind of situation where you know, you're kind of trapped in this cycle of, gosh, I've got to do this work. I've got to do all this work. I've, I've got these ambitions. I need to get this grade. I need to get this pass. And you're sort of starting to feel exhausted or even burnt out. Like, how do you even start to kind of break the cycle and, and kind of step out of that that situation? Like, what, what, where, where do we begin? <laughs> yeah, it, it's so interesting because I found that in my own journey away from anxiety, that there was a lot of anxiety embedded within that ambition. Yeah. And so you mentioned the the self-talk that we have, you know, that self-talk is often, that's often a symptom of anxiety, right? The racing and uncontrollable thoughts that we have. Um, I, I remember looking back when I was super, super driven by the ambition. And I, I still do have ambition. It's just less generalized and more directed at specific goals that will make a tangible difference. And I, I think that's kind of the key to understand is ambition can be good or bad. It depends whether it is thoughtful ambition, right? Mm. What are we aiming at? Are we aiming at the generalized pursuit of more, uh, which the research, when you look at it, shows the generalized pursuit of more actually makes us miserable because it it leads us to become less present with what we're doing, which makes us enjoy our life less, and also ironically makes us less productive because presence is the process through which we actually become productive. So it's one of those counter, another one of those counterintuitive loops. Uh, But it's fascinating often how much Anxiety is embedded within that construct of ambition simply because that ambition is generalized and we always feel as though we have to be making progress because we've adopted the default goals uh, that often the world around us gives us, which is the pursuit of more regardless of the context. And it's, it's often kind of ironic how the pursuit of more manifests in our life. Like we want more take out food at lunch, but we also want more fitness. We want more money for retirement, but we also want more material possessions in the moment. We have this generalized pursuit of more often. I think the key there is to weed out the anxiety, you know, the race, the racing, the uncontrollable thoughts. In, In my own experiences. Some of my symptoms were feeling restless and on edge, having difficulty concentrating. So that's actually another symptom uh, of anxiety, which is often something that we just 
try to force ourselves out of instead of taking a step back and dealing with the underlying root problems there. Having trouble sleeping is is also another symptom of anxiety that you were mentioning. A rapid heartbeat, palpitations, nausea, an upset stomach, dizziness and lightheadedness. Uh, that was one I experienced a lot too, This, mm. or, or, as well as this feeling of kind of impending uh, doom or, or fear was another thing that came up for me. And so I, I think the answer is kind of twofold to the question is, how much anxiety is embedded within your ambition? And in that ambition, how much of that ambition is actually targeted at specific goals that will make a tangible difference? And how much has your ambition become generalized, which will actually serve to make you less productive over the longer arc of time? So ambition is is this fascinating, you know, it's something I explore in the book in in great depth, as you know, but it's... um, and I promise that's my one and only plug for the the book during the interview. <laughs> you're, allowed one, you're allowed one, Chris. Yeah. It's a very strict rule. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's fascinating that the research on ambition is, is quite uh, mixed in this regard as to how helpful ambition even is. I, I find this a really interesting idea because so many of our, our listeners are pretty ambitious people. I was a pretty mm-hmm. ambitious, well, still am a pretty ambitious person. You know, for goodness sake, we are a podcast about how to study for your exams. You, you tend yeah. not to tune into a podcast about how to study unless you yeah, are a yeah, pretty ambitious kind of person. Yeah. So I guess the question that kind of came to mind for me around all this is, well, uh, the ambition spe- is probably quite specific. It is probably quite goal-oriented in a lot of the cases for our listeners. So yeah. it's ambition around a particular set of grades or getting into mm-hmm. a particular college or, or getting what you need from a college to get to a particular career. It would tend to be quite specific, I think, for a lot That's of good. our listeners. Yeah. But um, would would the ambition then, would you then consider that ambition to be problematic? And if so, what would your kind of counsel or advice be for, mm. I guess, an ambitious student specifically? I think, you know, when you are ambitious towards a goal, that's a positive thing. You know, especially when the goals that we set are connected with what we value. I think values are the key here, where we feel as though our behavior is meaningful when we can observe ourselves manifesting our values through our actions. And so values is something that I I love to explore. It's something I love to write about. And there's a theory of values from Shalom Schwartz, where he essentially, it's the most commonly accepted construct of values in the research. And he essentially boils the literature down to 10 basic fundamental human values. And those are self-direction. So that's independent thought and action. That's number one. Number two is stimulation. So that's excitement, novelty, challenge. Number three is hedonism. So it's pleasure, it's gratification for ourself. Uh, Achievement is actually another fundamental human values. So, uh, you know, demonstrating competence according to societal standards. Uh, Power is another one. So that social status and prestige, also control uh, over sometimes people and resources. It's not as common of a value, but it is a basic value that uh, many of us have. Security is another one that's, uh, you know, safety, it's stability, uh, conformity, is number seven. So that's making sure that our impulses aren't going to upset or harm other people. Tradition 
is another value. So that's respect, it's commitment, it's acceptance of customs. Benevolence is number nine. So that's uh, preserving and enhancing the welfare of people. And universalism, uh, one value that I have quite a bit of, it's understanding, appreciation, tolerance, and protection for the welfare of people and of nature. And we all have a different level on each of these values. So Let's say for simplicity's sake, we're two on some out of 10 and a four on, out of 10 on others and a nine out of 10 on others. I think ambition becomes most meaningful when it is aligned to what we truly value. So if you do value achievement, and that's totally fine because that is a fundamental human value. Uh, if you do value that personal success and you're able to manifest success in your own life through through grades, through through those traditional measures of success, then you're going to find that your actions are quite meaningful. But if you don't necessarily value achievement and you find that that is kind of an expectation that other people have of you, but you find that you value, say, tradition and self-direction and creativity, which would be a part of that, and you can observe yourself manifesting those things, then you're going to feel more meaningful under those circumstances. And so I, I think like all good things in, in this in this space, it really does come down to who we are as human beings and accommodating for our unique situations, our unique personalities, and just who we are on a fundamental human level. And what lies at the core of who we are, are those basic human values. And so, uh, achievement is one of those fundamental human values in a very curious way. Uh, but I, I think we, we need to accommodate the fact that achievement can be addictive, uh, where the pursuit of more, the, the more we achieve, the more we want to achieve, because once we get a little taste of more, we want even more of whatever currency uh, we're trying to optimize for in our life, whether that currency be grades or financial success or social recognition or status or fame or, or the contribution we're trying to make or how happy we are. And so I think this is a trap that I fell into in my own work where I value achievement. I, I still do value achievement. It's how I'm able to contribute to the world and to other people. Uh, but at the same time, you know, in over-investing in that one value of achievement, I forgot about self-direction, mm. you know, having this independent thought uh, and action a lot of the time, kind of doing work that was defined for me by consulting clients, things like that. Um, I forgot about nature. I for forgot mm. about people. I forgot about the traditions that I hold so dear. I forgot about so many different other elements of my life. And so I, I think ambition is something that is worth reflecting on especially as it connects with what we value. And so when our ambition allows us to act more in accordance with what we value and manifest these values through our actions, then it becomes far more meaningful, but we don't necessarily feel connected with who we are. And ambition can be blind and far less meaningful when, when we're simply just adopting this value of ambition that the cult around us seems to have that maybe we don't necessarily do. I think that's a really smart way of looking at it. Ambition is absolutely fine if it's aligned with your values, but uh, and a very healthy thing if it's aligned with your values, but yeah. if it's not yeah. congruent with who you are and what's important to you, if it's sort of 
should we say someone else, possibly someone else's ambition, you know, it might be your parents' ambition for you that you go, go on to be, I don't know, an investment banker, but maybe you've got an incredible, you know, maybe you're 10 out of 10 on universalism and you'd exactly, be much yeah. more congruent and feel much more aligned if you were, you know, going and, and, and doing something in the, in the, in the third sector or, you know, working, working for, for a sort of charitable organization or, or something. Yeah. Um, and, yeah. and this is the fascinating thing. I, and I, I found, that it wasn't until this kind of the last few years in my life that I've started to really reflect on my own values and what I truly care about as a, as an individual human being. And that, that's a whole other conversation because individualism versus collectivism is a value across different cultures, yeah. but setting that aside for the time being, it, it's fascinating how, we naturally tend to adopt the values of the world around us. So the world around us values more. So we try to accumulate more financial resources and, and possessions. I, at least I've, I fell into this trap myself. The, the world around us values, you know, currencies of success like follower counts, for an example. So that's something that we try to optimize for. But in my opinion, and again, this is just my opinion, as with all advice on any podcast ever, take what works for you and leave the rest. Sure. Uh, but but I found that when I really thought about it, I didn't care about a lot of these default values that surrounded me in our modern culture. Um, I, I did care about some of them. You know, happiness is something I care about. Calm is something I care about, something I care about more and more. Achievement is something I care about. Contributing to others is something I care about. But I think the last place we should be looking for you know, especially happiness advice from is the the modern world. The the modern world is not happy. You know, look <laughs> around. <laughs> the, and uh, anxiety is the same way. You know, when we adopt these default priorities, look around. A, a lot of people are anxious right now, and and it's no surprise why when you begin to deconstruct the trappings of of the modern world that we find ourselves in. But it's so worth reflecting on on the defaults that we adopt when we don't take that step back and really trying to make the connection between our daily behavior and those fundamental human values that we hold. Because the more aligned that is, the the more we will feel true to who we are and also the more meaningful and productive our actions will become. We'll see that our behavior is aligned to, to who we are on a personal, uh, fundamental human level. Uh, and We'll find more motivation, we'll find more drive, and we'll naturally become more productive and accomplished if that is something that you care about, as well as less burnt out. We'll become more engaged as well there too. Yeah. So I want to put you on the spot a little bit if you're up for it, Chris, and, and yeah. in, pursuit, in pursuit of, should we say, a, a calmer campus, whether it's a sort of university or college or a, or a, you know, a school, high school. If you were parachuted in as dean and you had total power to to change whatever you wanted on campus, you know you can change mm-hmm. things like timetabling, assessments, uh, interventions. Oh, if you want, you can t- do something differently with the physical environment, um, or just you know give the students uh, in, in your institution some specific guidance or advice. I just wondered if there's anything that came to mind in terms of how you might set up the conditions for more calm in, in a kind of educational setting? Oh, you know, one interesting aspect of modern anxiety is the connection with technology. And so we tend to all 
fly at a pretty high level of mental stimulation because we're always stimulating our mind through the use of technology, uh, especially around dopamine is is something that comes up a lot as a, a chemical of stimulation. And so I, I would look at where super stimuli are on the average high school or or, or college campus. You know, super stimuli are, are this fascinating idea. So they're Anything that is a super stimuli is basically a highly processed, exaggerated version of something that we're biologically programmed to crave and enjoy. So, you know, food is is a good example of this. Uh, a lot of modern food, if you hop on Uber Eats or uh, or whatever your delivery app of choice is, it's very salty, it's sugary, it's fatty, it's highly processed. And we evolved to crave things that are salty, sugary, and fatty. And so we tend to overeat with those kinds yeah. of things. But uh, social media is a super stimuli because it's a highly processed, exaggerated version of social interaction. It kind of mimics social reaction in a way where it's time with our friends, our, our ancient mind sees it as that. But in reality, we're really just trading these dopamine hits with one another over the internet. Uh, online news is a really good example as well. It's incredibly novel. It's, it's incredibly exaggerated. We, by default, we care about other people. And we want to know what's happening, and we want to stay abreast of all all the things that directly, all the potential threats that directly affect our life. And so, of course, we tend to the news quite often and refresh that throughout the day, too. And we tend to these super stimuli quite often throughout the day because we find them so difficult to resist in the moment. So if I were making a change to a high school or a college, and maybe this is more wishful thinking than anything, because if I think about how this could be implemented, I think it might be a bit too constrained and people should have, you know, more freedom and control over what they do throughout the day. But finding ways of cutting back and eliminating these super stimuli whenever we possibly can, I think is critical, as well as, you know, in its place, instead of you know, spending more time in the digital world. I, I think one great thing about environments like a campus is they're the analog world. Why would you want to go to a campus to look at a screen when we can interact with others, we can get to know each other, we can form these um, interpersonal connections, with, which I think we're missing out on a lot. And hardly anything calms us more than time with other people. Uh, but loneliness is through the roof right now. And yeah. uh, people have far fewer friends and more looser connections. So anything to foster connection and opportunities to look into the eyes of each other instead of just looking at a screen and uh, tending to these super stimuli, I think, uh, would be helpful. I'm really glad you brought up that the, the issue about technology and and screens and and you yeah. know the, the whole world of super stimuli as 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 you coin it um because it's it's a huge issue for for so many of the students you know I talk to and and yeah. and it's something their parents worry about a lot it's probably the most commonly asked question i get from parents you know how can i help my son or daughter get off their screen or be less distracted by their laptop or their their phone or, or whatever yeah. device they're it's, using but as a by the way I have heard so many parents ask that question, you know, after talks, yeah. after things like that. And then, you know, I'll run into them in the hall or something. Then they're on their phone. 
Yeah. And I think, why are you trying to get your kid to live by a, a different standard than you are? You know, uh, if you're having such a, a challenge, maybe they are too. Maybe it's not something you can just control in, in their life. <laughs> maybe it's something you have to work on too. Do, do as I say, not as I do. Um, exactly. Yeah. Well, I think I think you're absolutely right. And actually, you know, my my wife is leading the charge in our household. So we have a oh, nice. uh, a 15 month old daughter at home, and even before she was born, she was already my wife. This is was already conscious. Not not our daughter. Um, <laughs> my <laughs> wife was already conscious of the the need, and and I was completely behind her on this. That as parents, we want to set good examples for use of technology yeah. around the home. And so, you know, we try to avoid using our phones in the bedroom. We try to leave them in the hallway in a little box wherever possible, all that kind of thing. And, you know, we don't always live up to the standards we we aim for, but, you know, we, we do our best and I hope we, we improve over time. That's often the first thing I say as, as well, you know. I guess as a as parent of a teenager, you might sometimes feel a little bit powerless uh, to, to set a good example and you think, well, I won't, they're not going to follow what I do. And they, they might not yeah. follow what you do immediately, but... You know, actually, I think over the long run, the, the modeling can often have a really big impact. Oh, um, yeah, incredibly. You know, the modeling, uh, the, the research on modeling is actually fascinating. And it mm. makes far bigger difference than we think. It, if a manager, for example, at a company sends email over the weekend, their employees become far, far more likely mm. to send email over the weekend. Using phones during meetings is very similar at a company. Um, and in a home environment, we look at other people for how we should behave and kind of yeah. the customs and norms of, of a household. So, yeah, I, I think modeling is the key there. Yeah. It's, it's, it's really interesting that that was kind of this, this was the first thing that came to mind when you were thinking about, you know, what we might do differently on campus level. Because, you know, as we, as we said back at the start, a lot's changed over the last few years. And I think one of the things Just that's really changed in education is that the, the pandemic has, has really pushed the transition to online, to digital, to screen based. So, you know, a lot of schools will, and, and, and colleges, universities as well, will be kind of primarily now driven by, run by, you know, platforms like Microsoft Teams or Google Classroom, and that's where assignments are set and completed and marked. And, you know, it all just lives digitally. Textbooks are often more often digital. Exams are more often digital. The, the Venn diagram that you talk about is coming to mind at the moment. Mm. So you, you kind of have this nice way of talking about, well, okay, there's, there's this Venn diagram and th there are some activities that can only be done digitally social media there are some activities that can only be done in the analog world like walking or cooking and then there are maybe some activities in the middle in the overlap of those venn diagram circles that could be either analog or digital depending on your choice and i think as an individual in education so an individual student you, you do have a choice for, for some of those activities in the middle of the venn diagram so yeah. you know examples coming to mind for, for me are things like um, flashcards for example you can choose to make flashcards you know, great way to do learning, great way to do memorization. You can choose to make them through digital tools like Quizlet or Anki, um, mm -hmm. or you can choose to do them analog and do them on paper. And, you know, students I talk to sometimes go one way, sometimes go the other. But I think perhaps this whole thing about super stimuli and kind of avoiding the taking opportunities to take yourself out of the digital world could be a good argument for, in cases like this, for example, the flashcards, you know, opting to go the analog route. Yeah, exactly. And there is fascinating research behind why the analog world 
is is so beneficial to cultivating our attention as well as a, a sense of calm and a less anxious mind and a more productive mind. And it's because there are essentially two brain networks in our brain that are reverse correlated with one another. So when one is activated, the other isn't. And, and not to nerd out too much, but one... No, we love nerding uh, out. Go on. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. Let's, let's, let's nerd out then a little bit. So th- there's one brain network that uh, supports us in being present with something, anybody, uh, anybody that we're with, anything that we're doing. Uh, so we have a presence network. And we also have the, the dopamine-driven networks, especially those that, uh, that support us in... We already chatted about kind of the first one, this pursuit of more. Uh, so as we're pursuing more, we actually become less present and focused. And that's why neurologically. Uh, but stimulation is one that we just touched on as well. And so when we tend to something that is a super stimuli, uh, this fires up these stimulation networks in our brain. And this reduces activity in the networks in our brain that lead us to become present with whatever it is we're doing and whomever it is that we're with. So this is why super stimuli, over time, they kind of train our brain to become a bit less focused and present with whatever it is that we're trying to do. Uh, Because that network just isn't activated in our brain. And often it's not used to being activated. There aren't kind of effective traces in our brain that correspond with that network. But this is why that analog and digital divide is so interesting to think about because our brain relates to these two different environments completely differently. Uh, So if the digital world is about stimulation, it's often built around stimulation, it's built around efficiency. The analog world is built around that presence, that slowness, that meaning, that depth and that uh, just richness uh, with whatever it is that we're doing. And so it also activates that present network in our brain too. You know, the analog world is where other people are. It's where nature is. It's where all, all the things that calm our mind tend to be. And so one general heuristic that uh, I love to use for my own life, and I, I, I'd say I follow this probably about 90% of the time. There are some exceptions to this rule, as there are with any kind of rule out there. The the heuristic that I like to use is when I want to do something efficiently, I'll do it in the digital world. And when I want an experience to have meaning, I'll do it in the analog world, because that's where depth is. That's where engagement is. That's where, that's where presence is. And I, I find this to be a general uh, generally good rule. And often, you know, it, it doesn't apply in all cases because sometimes in the analog world, what we lose in efficiency, we more than make up for in how deliberately we're able to act. And so take for a simple example, keeping our to-do list in the analog world uh, or flashcards in the analog world is a, another good example of this. Yeah. Uh, we maybe can't do things as fast as we can digitally when we write out flashcards or uh, you know print them off or write out our to-do list but we have 
extra thoughtfulness that we dedicate towards these activities. You know, we might think a bit more about why we got an answer wrong if it's a a physical flashcard instead of just going on to the next one. Uh, For a to-do list, we can't necessarily tab over to Twitter or Instagram. We're stuck on that sheet of paper that has our to-dos on it. And so when meaning matters go analog, Uh, And when efficiency matters, you know, the digital world can add a lot of efficiency to our life. You know, my, my wife is a, is a professor of economics and, if she tried to run a regression on paper, I, I'm, yeah. I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure it would take her just a little bit longer than doing it digitally in in R or something. Yeah. But whatever it is that you can pull into this analog world, because you know you mentioned the Venn diagram, you, you can kind of picture uh, two circles that overlap in the middle: one circle for analog only things, one circle for digital only things, and where they meet in the middle, those are the opportunities to introduce more calm into our life and more meaning and more richness without necessarily losing all that much. I think we actually gain more than we lose when we bring things into the analog world. So it could be a to-do list, could be time with friends, spending that time in person instead of trading dopamine hits online. It could be picking up a physical book and cracking it open and making notes in the margin. It could be playing games. It could be just looking up words even. It could be consuming the news the analog way too. So there are countless, countless examples of activities that live in the middle that we can welcome into our analog world. Uh, You know, on average, we spend over 13 hours a day looking at screens. And so any opportunity to reduce that amount of time, I think we should take. Absolutely. I tell you what, Chris, I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit obsessed with how to learn efficiently, uh, as, as you might know. And I'm sure yeah, our listeners know. Yeah. I'm now itching to go away and do the study of, you know, Quizlet versus paper flashcards and mm. see which group learns the most and retains the most on the test. Yeah, um, I would be, be super curious <laughs> because you do have these, these kind of double loops of reflection around what you're doing. So, but writing down the things on the flashcards is, you know, another loop a- around the the learning process, and then refreshing your mind when you see them and the physicality and and the presence that it leads to. Simply, you know, one underrated thing about the analog world too is not really having the option, the immediate option to do something else. You know, if you're sitting down on a table with a bunch of flashcards and your phone is on the other side of the house, for example, you're going to be focused on that activity and it's going to take a bit of effort to get up and distract yourself versus the digital way very quickly. Yeah. Okay. So one final thing I'd love to just touch on briefly is, you know, so many of us are sort of used to this level of stimulation in our lives from these various yeah. stimuli. Maybe it's social media for you. Maybe it's gaming. Maybe it's, um, mm, yeah. f- for me, as I think it is for you, you mentioned, um, you know, checking your performance metrics. I'm the same. I log in every day and I check my blog stats and my <laughs> podcast downloads. And how do we break the cycle? How do we reset our, our tolerance or our appetite for that kind of stimulation? Yeah. So I, I played around with a lot for resetting this uh, stimulation tolerance and somewhat uh it was it was interesting where the most effective solution that i found for uh, destimulating our mind it, you know stimulation is a problem because the more stimulated our mind becomes the more stimulation 
we crave by default because we want to stay at that same level of stimulation. So, you know, this is why when you wake up with your phone and you go to Instagram first thing and then you go to Twitter and then, you know, over to a different app and then play a game for a little bit, uh, you want to keep getting those super stimuli hits throughout the day simply because they release dopamine and dopamine is uh, addictive. It's it's addictive on a chemical level. And dopamine fasting is is a term that's been thrown around quite a bit. And it's kind of a misnomer though, because we can't fast from dopamine. We, we, we need dopamine to think logically. We need dopamine to think creatively. Our body relies on dopamine for its basic biological functions. But as we were kind of talking about over the course of the interview, it, it does have a bit of a darker side as it relates to accomplishment, uh, where we crave more accomplishment, the more accomplished we become, becomes kind of a negative cycle uh, if we don't channel that ambition thoughtfully and deliberately. But we also get that dopamine release when we tend to something that's stimulating. And so stimulation becomes addictive. And so we find ourselves becoming very distractible. We find it difficult to focus. And the best way that I found of taming this impulse for distraction uh, is a stimulation fast. So we can't really fast from dopamine any more than we can fast from carbohydrates on a chemical level. Uh, But what we can fast from are the empty sources of dopamine, the uh, shallower sources of dopamine, where we engage with an activity primarily for the hit of dopamine itself, whether that be a a video game, whether that be uh, the social media, whether that be any super stimuli that tends to find its way into our life. Uh, And so a stimulation fast is quite, I I find that a period of about a month works really well for me. Uh, But essentially, you identify the things that you want to weed out. Anything that you engage with because it's really novel. It's super stimulating. Identify things to weed out in a list, perhaps. And then identify some well-rounded things, maybe things in the analog world that you want to introduce in its stead. So maybe a, a musical instrument you haven't picked up in a while. Maybe it's a physical books. Maybe it's volunteering and getting those hours. Maybe it's any project in the analog world, really. Anything that makes you feel proud or connected or uh, a rush, like with uh, exercise and working out. And so make a list of those as well, because when you find yourself wanting to distract yourself, you can engage with one of these activities during the fast and just notice what changes over the course of this month or so. Uh, Because in my opinion, the best habits as it relates to calm and productivity and anxiety and burnout are are self-reinforcing where we notice them working. And so we want to continue engaging with and investing in them. And so stimulation fast is such a great way of weeding out these dopaminergic activities and distractions that have kind of started to grow in the little cracks that comprise our day like weeds. We can really tame them through a stimulation fast. And I find myself conducting a stimulation fast maybe every three to four months or so for about a month because I find that the focus that I have afterward and the lack of anxiety that I have afterward and the calm 
that I have afterward that leads me to deliberately, thoughtfully become more productive is just such an incredible dividend and worth the effort and the struggle many, many times over. But substitute activities really does uh, work wonders uh, for this activity, as well as identifying the things that you want to weed out for a month. Not just subtracting, but substituting, not just taking yeah, away, exactly, but finding yeah. what to add back. Fascinating. Fascinating. Chris, thank you so much for the conversation today. You've been incredibly generous with your time and your wisdom, as always. I wondered if we could maybe just just conclude with perhaps your 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 favorite little pearl of wisdom that might be relevant to people listening today. And then I'd love to hear you know, where can people find more about Calm and and the world of Chris Bailey generally. Thank you so much for having me on again. We'll have to make sure that we don't go several years without chatting next time. It's like <laughs> Let's not leave it so long next time. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, exactly. Maybe uh, maybe the world will fare a bit better if we don't go so long without chatting. Um, <laughs> one little idea that I think is worth sharing is that calm is not very interesting. And calm is not something that I ever really sought until... I found a complete absence of it in my own life. Uh, I I was on stage uh, giving a talk in front of about 100 people when I had a panic attack. Uh, And it was it was a really you know garbage feeling on on stage. Uh, Luckily, I made through the talk on autopilot mode. And afterward, I, I really asked myself the question, like, what do I have to do? What has to be true in my life to welcome more calm into my days. And that's what motivated me to look at this research and and really find and discover how powerful that calm can be. Uh, It may not be something that we seek by default. And at the same time, though, I have over these this past decade or so of writing about productivity full-time and researching productivity full-time, it is one of the most powerful tools that we can possibly have at our disposal for doing good work and living a good life and developing our capacity for presence, for being engaged with whatever it is that we're doing and whomever it is that we're with. I think it's the most underrated uh, ingredient for productivity during a time as anxious as the one that we're in right now. I, th- I think actually in, a, in an a- anxious time, the path to productivity runs straight through calm for all the reasons yeah. that we talked about. Calm leads us away from burnout. It leads us away from anxiety. It improves our cognitive performance. It makes us less reactive. It makes us more focused, creative, uh, and of course, productive. And so I would really encourage people to consider the things that may be affecting their productivity that they don't necessarily realize. And I think Calm would be at the very top of that list. Fantastic. Well, that's wonderful advice. And I think you put it so, so well. Chris, I'm sure many listening will be eager to to dive deeper into the world of Calm and productivity. Yeah. Uh, tell us where we can go for more. Oh, yes. The, well, the book is called How to Calm Your Mind. And in my opinion, it is the best thing that I have ever written. And it is wherever books are sold. And I'd encourage you to pick it up. And my website is chrisbailey.com. And my podcast is called Time and Attention. I do it with my wife. We chat about 
productivity, and she sometimes talks about economics. <laughs> Amazing. Amazing. Well, look, Chris, we'll, we'll link all three of those in the show notes and, and highly recommend people check them out. I was actually chatting to someone earlier today who uh, uh, said they listened to our first conversation and now they are an avid listener of the podcast and, and oh, I love it. looking forward to getting your new book etc so um, awesome yeah no it obviously uh, really resonates with a lot of people and uh, you know I, I i highly rate your content and what you have to say about the subject yeah. and i and i don't say that lightly so thank oh. you so much for coming on again and uh, and sharing perspective on calm and, and productivity it's oh. it's always great thank to you. chat and uh, yeah wishing you all the best thanks again thank you so much wasn't that wonderful? If you're feeling inspired, why not leave us a rating and a review in your podcast app? It would make our day. Thanks again for listening and see you soon.